Does 5G and the various parts of its infrastructure represent a threat to the environment? Is there a democratic way out of the Great Reset? How does the Paris Accord not solve the problem of addressing climate change regardless of what world leaders do? Are Greta Thunberg and Extinction Rebellion part of the climate solution or part of the climate problem? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we turn once again to the challenge of tackling climate change and dare to investigate the operations of elite institutions leading the charge on devising climate strategies and seeing where other agendas interfere. In our first half hour, Corny Morningstar tackles a recent article she wrote about the Great Reset and about how the grand new vision embracing the planet will do more harm than good. In our second half hour, we are joined by economist and activist Clive Spash, who will address how climate accords embracing economic growth, carbon capture storage, and carbon emissions trading are fundamentally useless and how fundamental solutions can be achieved. On this week's program, the Great Reset, the Green New Deal, and co-opted NGOs will not end climate change. Conversations with Corey Morningstar and Clive Spash. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of December 4th, 2020. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nehiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. For millions of vulnerable Americans, if evicted, they'll have no place to go if unable to live with other family members. Mass unemployment, growing poverty and deprivation, food insecurity, and widespread evictions next year reflect the dire state of things in the U.S. What's happening is likely to be protracted because COVID and economic collapse were planned, not accidental. What's going on is part of a diabolical plot to transform the U.S. and other Western nations into ruler-surf societies. The only possible antidote is mass activism in the streets for equity and justice, staying the course, paying the price for positive change, or abandon all hope henceforth. That comes from the article, Millions of Americans Vulnerable to Eviction, by Stephen Lenman, posted December 2nd. According to the Farmer's Guardian, Mr. Condon described gene editing and CRISPR technology as an, quote, amazing breakthrough, unquote, that would allow agriculture to be more sustainable. But he said the main issue was Europe's regulatory process, which approaches newer GM technology in the same way as old transgenic GMOs. This meant 
it would not be possible to develop crops suited to Europe because it would be too expensive to carry out all the trials that are required there. In reality, however, neither old nor new GM has the potential to make agriculture more sustainable as a new scientific review has found. And the EU's GMO regulations don't stop countries carrying out GMO research trials. The UK has up to recently been part of the EU and continues to host such trials with nothing of value to show for them. That comes from the article, Bear Lobbying Very Strongly to Change EU's GMO Regulations to Exempt Gene Editing. Posted December 2nd, originally published at GM Watch. Washington claims that it's protecting so-called freedom of navigation, but to continue the metaphor, it actually barged into China's house because of a dispute with some of its neighbors. America regards itself as the global policeman, hence its arrogant actions, but it was never deputized by the international community to fulfill such a role. Rather, it's more like a dangerously delusional role-player than a legitimate law enforcement officer. Some of China's maritime neighbors object to its territorial claims, but these are all bilateral disputes that should be handled between Beijing and each of the relevant parties. The U.S. has no business to involving itself in such issues, but it does so anyhow in order to divide and rule the region. That comes from the article Global Policeman, why this the U.S. in the South China Sea? By Andrew Karibko, posted December 2nd, originally published on One World. A recent report by the Bank of Spain has further reduced investor hope in this European country. According to a study carried out by the bank, between 6 and 10% of Spanish companies will disappear due to liquidity problems as a result of the COVID pandemic. According to data from the same report, 40.6% of Spanish companies are in financial trouble in 2020, compared to 13.9% in 2019. This means that almost half of the Spanish private sector is not making enough profit from its activities to continue producing in long term. The number is a structural threat to the economy of this European country and represents an evident risk of financial collapse. That comes from the article Spain on the Brink of Financial Collapse by Lucas Leros de Almeida, posted December 2nd, originally published at Infobricks. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. The Great Reset. The World Economic Forum described it as the start of an initiative to address the simultaneous concerns of so-called global stakeholders and improving the state of the world. 
It is a reorientation of capitalism in such a way as to achieve mutual progress on racism, inequities, and poverty while being mindful of our environmental responsibilities. The changes involve increases in the use of artificial intelligence, 5G, and the fourth industrial revolution, as it's called, have implications for energy use even while climate change continues to be one of the greatest threats to our long-term survival. So what is this rethinking behind this whole global mindset really all about? Cory Morningstar wrote about the topic in an essay entitled The Great Reset, The Final Assault on the Living Planet. She came on the show recently to share her perspective on how this vision of the elites will jeopardize our lives. Cory Morningstar is an independent investigative journalist, writer, and environmental activist focused on global economic collapse and political analysis of the non-profit industrial complex. In the words of Jay Tauber, Morningstar steps through the looking glass to expose how NGOs have become a key tool of global dominance using social media as a means of social manipulation. She's a regular contributor to wrongkindofgreen.org, as well as her site, theartofannihilation.com. The article is the third in a three-part series. I gave her a chance to discuss the overall context of the series. In part one, the first the first part of the series, um, basically I discussed the Social Dilemma documentary. Um, and from there, the protagonist of that film is Tristan Harris. And I trace that back to um, the Center for Humane Technology, um, which is formerly called Time Well Spent. And then I trace that back to, um, actually, that traces back to Ariana Huffington, who, as you, I'm sure you know, owned Huffington Post. And um, that, that then ties into what's called the movement to align technology with our humanity, time well spent. <clears throat> time well spent is... Um, marketed as a movement, quote unquote movement, which operates in conjunction with Thrive Global, and that's based on behavioral change, media and technology um, venture capital headquartered in New York. And that has offices actually across the world as well in San Francisco, Mumbai, Athens, and Melbourne with um, different partners, again, tied into the World Economic Forum and the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So that it goes into the partnerships there and their agenda and on the money behind that, which again, lots of um, venture capital put forward by, by Benioff. And then that, that sort of comes forward to what we see now, um, all roads leading to the further plunder of this great, the fourth industrial revolution, what now they call the great reset using COVID as catalyst, which is actually exactly um, that, I mean, the founder and CEO of the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, he actually has a book called COVID-19, The Great Reset. So it, it, it ties into all that. And then I go into part, part two. Part two is actually called, let me grab it up here. It's the, this one's called The Enclosure of Africa. Okay, and so this one's all about Facebook coming to um, to Africa. They're they're putting building a huge underwater uh, cable all around the whole continent. That's and it's basically where digital colonization meets white paternalism. That's one of that's how it's introduced this section. 
So this is all about population, how it's declining in the global north. All eyes are on um, South Asia, India, and Africa for the, basically for capitalism to begin to, um, you know, to keep going. There, it's all based on data colonies, harvesting data from people, and emerging markets. So that's part two. And then in part three, which I think we'll discuss a little bit. Um, anyway, this part is called the great reset the final assault on the living planet and this one starts off all of all it starts off with artificial intelligence automation and cyber warfare um it also announces another component of the great reset which i which i recently ran across it's called imperative 21 it's a reset campaign and it's basically the front the front campaign for the business roundtable and anyone the business roundtable has been around since the 70s. It was founded by the CEO of Alcoa and I believe the president of, or founder of General Electric. And it's been a real force for the systemic destruction of labor um, over the past, um, you know, since it was founded. So basically that's, that brings us to part three. So maybe you want to jump in. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a, a lot of individuals who are very uh, active with the, the social engineering in particular of, of this uh, whole thing. Is, is that essentially what, uh, what what's making it so successful? The social engineering has been become basically the key component behind everything. I mean, if you start reading the white papers and communication guides, even from Purpose, which is the for-profit PR marketing arm of Avaz, which works with the United Nations and some of the um, some of the biggest corporations on the planet. If you look at their white papers, it's all like the key key things here moving everything are are um, you know celebrity influencers, um, any kind of influencers. So it's all driven by. Um, basically using, you know, human behavior traits, like the power of conformity, like that they basically use them as weapons against the populace. And we really are being engineered to, they don't have to, it's not really the 1984 type of thing where these things have to be, I mean, we're battered with the propaganda through the media, but we're not being forced per se, right? Um, and instead we're being engineered and manipulated to demand the solutions that they want to give us, that they have um, created, right? Their architectures, their designs, their um, desires. So we're being engineered, um, you know, to march and demand the very things to enslave, further enslave us and further destroy our shared world. And so, yeah, social engineering is like a massive component of, of all of this. And I try to explain that um, in my writing. Okay. Um, now, I noticed in the 5G infrastructure, there's, um, there's a, a state of, of it being a significant drain on energy. So electricity, um, so much that they represent extra baggage in the fight to stop global warming. And could you mention... Just a couple of examples of how the data centers and the hyperscale data centers and the network services can all tax the environment. Yeah, like this part is super interesting because, as you know, um, the Great Reset, um, this whole thing, you know, Build Back Better, all the different names they have for it, um, Thrive, you know, Reimagine, Redesign, it's all premised on going forward to this, um, you know, idea that we're going forward to really clean um 
regenerative type of existence and harmony with the planet. And we're going to now, the very people and entities that have destroyed our planet um, will now be the stewards of nature. And they will own nature and that nature will be bought, sold, traded on Wall Street, right? And it will be um, privatized, cut off and enjoyed by few and owned by few. Um, so anyway, it's just interesting that it's all done under this guise of green and regenerative renewal when, and you know, all these names like the cloud, right? It sounds so, you know, invisible and clean and beautiful and pure. And so many of these words, even Amazon, right? Amazon forest, like they're, you know, chief pollinators, the list goes on and on and on. Like it's sort of like the everyone knows about subdivisions, like how they're always named after what they destroyed, right? Like the red fox, whatever, um, the birch, you know what I mean? Um, subdivisions are notorious for naming, being named after what they've destroyed. And this rings true again with technology, right? So many um, names are being given to things being destroyed under the premise of, of, of clean. So anyway, I'm sort of rambling there, but um, the cloud, basically data centers are this massive thing. Um, the, I mean, all this information, every single thing, including this has to be stored somewhere and it all gets stored every, every speck of data, which is now a new, um, you know, um, now bigger than oil, right? Data surpassed oil in, in 2017. So it's all about data harvesting this thing Anyway, the emissions aspect has really been lost here. People have focused on aviation and different, and not, you know, not militarism, which is massive, but they focused on aviation and on fossil fuels. But this whole fourth industrial revolution is not only expands renewables, which aren't, aren't clean anyway, but it also is completely dependent on fossil fuels, right? And so the, I think it's, what is it now? Um, within the next 10 to 15 years, they want to double the planet, the infrastructure on the planet. So the idea that that can somehow bring down um, pollution or greenhouse gas emissions is, you know, insane. And the data centers themselves, I mean, the data shows that by 2030, the expected consumption of all energy on, of the planet will be about 30% to consume by, um, the information and communications technology, right? It's called ICT. So, and that's the expected scenario, but that scenario was forecast prior to this year where everything's moving from the physical world to an artificial one and digital one. And so the worst case scenario, which isn't even recent is 50% of all energy um, created and consumed on the planet by 2030 will be consumed by ICT. I mean, so the, this is massive, you know, and just in the past couple of days, I listened to um, Alan Musk speaking and he was saying how electric, the electric car will double the planet's um, global energy consumption. And I'm just actually tra transcribing exactly what he said so I can provide that sustainable energy uh, powering this uh, whole thing that's uh, kind of a, a bit of a, a, you know, a 
shifting mirrors or something where you're you're not really seeing the, the reality that it will be burning even more. Yeah, like not only is okay, so the main um, buyers um, of this energy are you know Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft, Google. They're buying up all the renewable energy, but instead of it, even if it was, even if we could say it was clean or you know whatever. Um, even if we could say that it's just being um, eaten by these data centers. There was about 500,000 data centers in 2012, and now there's over 8 million of them. And now we have hyperscale data centers. So they're literally um, like gobbling up every single, all the new energy coming online is just being taken by these data centers. So we're not offsetting or, um, you know, mitigating or, anything i mean it's just more and more and more right and then for what if you look at the numbers where they're focused on i mean it's not to bring knowledge to people right it's like the main the main drivers of the internet are live streaming music live streaming movies right gaming right gaming's another huge one so we're literally creating all this energy to so we can watch movies and play games. I mean, it's actually insane. You mentioned that uh, you know the engine. It's the the engine of the fourth industrial revolution, artificial intelligence, and the fourth industrial revolution can't come into fruition without five G and the Internet right. of Things. Now we hear about self-driving cars, speedy downloads, and the ability to conduct brain surgeries from a distance and such. Okay, those are the caught the. the those are the good things, but then there are the costs in the form of the, to your health and the environment. I mean, it's all out there. So, but I'm wondering what is the real goal through, through all of this, you know, the good and the bad, what is the main role of these drivers that you mentioned? Well, the main role is always money and power, right? That, that one thing never changes. It's always more money, more power. And so again, like data is the new oil. Um, every ounce of information feeds the algorithms, the machine learning, the artificial intelligence. So there's that, the more people using the computer, using the internet of things, using all this, the more the artificial intelligence learns from it, the more data is, is harvested. Right. Um, so impact investing, social impact bonds, all that tie into this. I mean, ultimately, this whole transition is about the transition from a, a living, uh, you know, from all the joys that come from living in a real world with, um, you know, smells and senses and, you know, all the things that make life worth living and basically de-merging, fusing human and machine together, right? It's a fusion of human with machine going into the future. And so to do that, you have to have, we, they want people to, um, to come to prefer that, right? So the idea is to break away from the, from the physical emerge and prefer and even preference the digital so uh, artificial digital existence and then i guess the idea that everyone will just basically stay in one spot in front of the computer for most of their life that sounds like there will be less um you know destruction in the natural world but as people will see going through this i mean the destruction is from capitalism itself. I mean, they try to frame it like it's your fault, my fault, but it's actually the system 
right? And so that's actually, um, you know, eco-fascist to say, to try to blame it on the whole of humanity when it's a small group of people creating most of the greenhouse emissions and, um, you know, consuming everything. It's not the whole planet, it's a small group. So, I mean, there's all type, there's all kinds of different elements in that, but that's basically what this is, a transition to an artificial existence. And, and I also wanted to say, backing up just a bit, so it's all presented under the guise of, you know, politically correct and um, even admired solar and, and wind, even if you watch the documentary Planet of Humans, you know, that's anything but. And then what's hidden is the pursuit of more nuclear, right? Because that's going to be huge, the pursuit of more nuclear, the pursuit of carbon capture storage all of which is now being slowly introduced to the public, which has been happening, you know, over years and, and ignored and deliberately um, made invisible by, you know, the foundation funded so-called left. Well, that brings me to my last point um, with the Great Reset. Are, are there any instruments that allow a fundamental rejection of it? Or, or is it all similarly dealt with through you know, deleting in, inconvenient arguments or, or making the PR of, of the reset more successful? What, what are your thoughts? Um, you know, united, we can never be defeated. That's my thoughts. Right now we have um, a real problem with rejecting the tools they use to that sort of manipulate us into conforming right out of fear of rejection by our peers they're very very powerful with so many resources and um you know on the side the luck we don't have we don't have obviously that kind of those resources and that kind of power but we do have truth on our side and again like that because the whole infrastructure for this is 5g which will become 6g by around 2030 which will even be more harmful more dangerous um you know without i mean i don't want to get arrested for anything i say here but yeah the focus without i'll just say without that 5g infrastructure intact in place um they can't they will not be able to advance their plans and and that's why they've actually framed 5g as you know they framed it in a box as conspiracy theory it's nothing it's not conspiracy theory it's rolling out it's a massive project especially in europe whoever owns the 5g i mean the united states they own most of the platforms but europe will dominate 5g and, and china and it's a very real thing. There's scientists and doctors that have spoken against it. They've written letters um, to the WHO, to the C CDC, the United Nations. Um, they've been ignored. The UN wants you to unite behind the science, but they only want you to unite behind the science that serves capital, right? So anyway, that's um, a, a real area that's been um, deliberately, again, buried, framed in a way that makes it unapproachable, a way that makes people not look at it for fear of being ridiculed or rejected, but it's very real. Um, Gates and Buffett and everybody else have billions of dollars parked there um, because it's an area that's expected to explode. And again, all of this right now, 
there's, you know, maybe half the world on Facebook, you know, there's, they don't have everybody online. They need everybody. Um, when they say we need everyone, they actually need everyone online. That's what, that's the end, end goal, right? Every single person on this planet with a digital identity online, harvesting the data um, in one place where, you know, where they can have complete control and surveillance over the whole society. So, um, yeah, there's areas definitely that, that people need to look at. And, and I mean, I think we need to start moving offline and organizing in real life and, and you know, in our local communities, because the, the type of organize, organizing that's going, that we're going to have to do, the types of things that, need, that will need to be carried out can't be done online. We just heard Corey Morningstar speaking on her latest article, The Great Reset, The Final Assault on the Living Planet. You can read more of her articles on the site wrongkindofgreen.org or on theartofannihilation.com. Coming up next, my climate change discussion with Glive Spash. Please don't go away. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. This time of year, early December, is usually when the United Nations Climate Change Conference of the Parties come together to discuss their partnership in addressing the climate crisis. It was postponed until next year, although a series of climate dialogues took place over the last two weeks over the Internet to help build momentum, forging intergovernmental processes toward a robust movement in support of climate action and climate ambition. With all this energy in the direction of climate solutions, the sad chapter is that these strategies simply won't do anything to help us reckon with this gigantic problem. So says Clive Spash. He's a professor and chair of public policy and governance in the Department of Socioeconomics at WU Vienna University of Economics and Business. After 30 years of involvement in a range of topics, he has been forced to move away from mainstream environmental and resource economics, looking at links with natural sciences, understanding applied ethics, exploring models of democracy and public participation in political science, and linking with social psychology to develop models of human behavior and motivation. His books include The Political Economy of Nature and Greenhouse Economics, Value, and Ethics. He's also a publisher of over a 100 articles, including his 2016 paper, This Changes Nothing, The Paris Agreement to Ignore Reality. I asked Professor Spash to elaborate on that theme. Yeah, the problem with the Paris Agreement is that it's just so weak. It doesn't actually commit anybody to do anything. It's really like an intention. So even the, the, the targets that are set are intentional there's nothing compulsory about it. There's no requirements to actually do anything. It's a bit like, you know, I was thinking about it today and I was thinking, it's a bit like you see a house on fire in your neighborhood. The neighbors gather around and look at the house. And the Paris Agreement is an agreement to accept that the house is on fire. And then everybody walks away and says, we'll come back later and discuss how to put it out. You know, that's the Paris Agreement. Oh, so we just acknowledged now after 30 or 40 years that the house is on fire. And now we're going to go away and think about what to do. We'll come back with some good intentions on what actions to take. You know, 
so the Paris Agreement is, it doesn't even, you know, if you take that analogy a bit further, it doesn't even recognize that the house is on fire because it doesn't, doesn't actually know what fire is. It doesn't talk about fossil fuels. It doesn't talk about the structure of the economy. It doesn't tell you anything at all. I mean, it's quite an amazing agreement. And it's, it's really, this is why I say it's, it's an agreement to ignore reality because there's nothing of any substance in it at all. So you have some very loose ideas about in good intentions, you know, good intentions to do something in the future. And even the, the targets that are intention, intended targets, these are independently set by individual nations. So the individual nations have good intentions to do something, but they're not required to do it. And there's no enforcement mechanisms. Well, could you maybe talk about the uh, uh, one aspect uh, the, that's contained in, in the Paris Agreement and other principled agreements, the, the drive to continue growing the economy uh, is unchallenged. Uh, yeah. yeah, growth directly connects to climate change. Uh, is growth an absolute necessity if climate change is to be addressed? So the, the problem is, and it's not even that it's a, a passing phenomena in the Paris Agreement, it's actually in one of the articles, in Article 10, that we, not only do you address climate change, but you must promote growth. The growth economy must be promoted in order to address climate change. Now, to me, this is totally bizarre, right? It's the cause of climate change. And what you have is the cause of climate change being promoted as the solution. It makes absolutely no sense at all. Right? So the growth economy is the thing that is, in, is responsible for the throughput and energy consumption that we have. The more that we consume, the more growth we have. So the logic is that we need to maintain the growth economy in order to maintain jobs and in order to maintain wealth. But of course, when you do that with a material industrial economy, you increase energy consumption. And what is the energy source that we have is fossil fuels, which are carbon-based fossils fuels, and they put carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, along with other greenhouse gases, nitrous oxides as well, and uh, methanes and so on. So when we have energy throughput, and, and, and well, which is what the growth economy is about, we immediately create pollution, and we end up with the gases going into the upper atmosphere. So it's a contradiction to actually promote the growth economy. So, you know, and you, as you start thinking about why are they pushing the growth economy? Why are they pushing this, this economy forwards? Because this is the basic essence of the way that industrial society is structured. It's built around the exploitation of resources and the throughput of the resources in the economy. And that's what creates power and wealth. So it's not uh, going to go away. It's something that is going to be essential when you get environmentalism arising from the 70s uh, onwards, it becomes a threat to the growth economy. So some economists in the 60s and 70s recognized that you needed to address the growth economy and that this had to be something that would be restructured. But that becomes a threat to corporations, corporate powers, to, uh, to capitalism, but not just capitalism, it comes, it's a threat to any industrialized nation. So, you know, the Soviet Union, a capital accumulating economy on a vast scale, this is also a threat to them. So all of these kind of nation states that have built on industrialism, material and energy throughput, they cannot go without the growth economy. They want to maintain it. They have to keep employment, they keep the resource throughput, the flows, they have to renew their infrastructure and it's all fossil fuel based. So you have a major challenge here that's coming from environmentalism 
to the structure of modernity of the modern economy. Couldn't one grow the economy and stem emissions by simply using non-fossil fuels as a source of power? Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Like, I mean, even the term "growing the economy," right? So, if we just construct that a little bit, you say, "What is the economy?" And and is there just one economy? Why do we have it like the economy? You know, it's always the singular, and it's this idea that uh, that we actually have a single type of economy rather than there's a variety of different types of economy. So what you do is then you open up the box and you say, okay, maybe we could have a different economy, different types of economy. And now, what's an economy? Economy is really about social provisioning. It's about creating of welfare in society through providing for people. That's what an economy should be about. But the economy is very much narrowed down under capitalist uh, economies and economic structures to being about finance and money rather than being about the uh, the well-being of people. Okay, so if we take that and we say, okay, why would we want to grow an economy that was about the well-being of people? So let's just say we take an indicator that isn't about financial. We say we want happiness for people. Why should people get happier and happier? I mean, how happy can you be? You know, it's like if you take an indicator which is not financial, then immediately it doesn't make sense to grow things continuously. Right. So, what you want from an economy is you want an economy that is fair, just, and supplies people with what they need. And if it's a need-based economy, you don't grow your needs. Right. You meet your needs. So it, it's a, it's the idea of having a different type of economy is what you need, a different understanding of the economy, and actually something that was understood previous to to capitalism taking over and, and replacing the idea of what the economy is about with this idea it's about making money. And this is then the problem. So why would you need to grow the economy if you had an alternative economic structure in society? You don't need to grow the economy. It's the wrong, it's the wrong focus, you know. So then you get the other issue that, that you're touching on here is what happens when you change the economy in terms of its material energy throughput? We still need to have material energy in order to meet our needs. Can we meet those needs in a way which is less harmful to the environment? Now here you have on the green economy front, what you have is a straightforward substitution to maintain the current economic system, the industrial economy. Now, if you do that, you change nothing. What you end up with is material energy throughput through a different means. So you end up with a different bunch of materials being used and a different range of energy. You you don't actually change the fundamentals of the system. So I think that you know uh, recently there's been the the film that came out, uh, which is the, uh, the not called Planet of the Apes, but Planet of the People, uh, and this has actually you know, upset a lot of the of the environmentalists. But I actually think it makes a very important and serious point, which is if you look at the energy return on energy invested and the material throughput of many of the technologies that are being promoted as saving. Uh, saving the environment, they're actually not saving the environment. They're actually negative. So you have to do life cycle assessments. You look at the life cycle, uh, and you say, okay, I, where do I extract my resources from? What maintains this energy system? So if I build a a a, a wind plant for energy source, what do I build it of? Do I build it of concrete? Do I use rare earth metals? In the transformers, do I set up a national grid so I can maintain the existing structure? Well, if you do all that, then you've got material energy throughput on a massive scale, and you end up with negative energy return on energy invested, and it doesn't help you. So, 
So then you have to think about a different type of economy, right? So we use renewables. I mean, what were windmills made of in the past? Wood, right? Wood is a renewable resource. It doesn't require fossil fuels. How do we cut trees down? We saw them down by hand, right? Yeah. That's how you can cut a tree down without it. I mean, you know, you have different means to produce and you produce less and you produce what you need. You don't produce infinite amounts of useless stuff that gets thrown in the bin. So it's a different type of economy. Modern day environmentalists evoked a Keynesian productivity principle, you Roosevelt's New Deal and threw in environmental priorities and came up with a Green New Deal. Explain how that strategy is flawed. Okay, so the, the primary concern of Keynesian economics and in the 1930s was social issues. And the gross inequity of un, people being unemployed and not being able to feed themselves and poverty. So the aim of, uh, of, a, uh, of a New Deal and for Keynesian economics was to reflate the economy, to get the economy going again, which means providing jobs in a capitalistic economic system. So it's how do we rebuild capitalism when it collapses, when it's having an economic crisis. And the only way that people can feed themselves in a capitalist system is if they have money. And the only way they can get money is if they have jobs. So you have to create jobs, you create material energy throughput, and you get the economy going. But the problem with that is that there's no concern for the environment at all. The environment was never on the agenda in the 1930s. It was irrelevant, right? So you have massive public works projects which dam rivers, create energy schemes, build roads, whatever. You don't care about the environment. You extract the resources and you do whatever you have. So can you make the, green, the, the, the New Deal approach green? Well, that's the problem, right? Is if, if you're stuck within the capitalist economic system, and you're just talking about making more jobs and putting energy and material throughput through, you have a contradiction. But there's a more fundamental question here is, why do we want jobs? Well, most people are doing useless jobs that they don't even like, right? So you're gonna create more useless jobs that people don't like so that they can feed themselves. Well, wouldn't it be more sensible just to feed them? I mean, wouldn't it be more sensible to have a different economic system where we met our needs directly rather than going through this circle, which is actually a, a circle which is about exploitation of people to extract surplus from their labor. So you've got a real problem here, right, in the way that the system is set up. So the Green New Deal, the problem with Green New Deals is that they are very much socially focused, which is good, but they're not environmentally focused and they're not even socially focused to the extent that they're addressing the work labor problem and the exploitation of labor and the unfairness of it. So they're well-meaning on the social front, undoubtedly, and there are real social issues that need to be addressed, but they do not address the environmental crisis unless they seek an alternative economy. And if you're going down the alternative economy route, you may as well start addressing the work issue as well. Military infrastructure goes hand in hand with developing infrastructure around trade routes, energy resources, and so on. The military is also extremely dependent on fossil fuel energy. Could you explain why military spending goes unaddressed in these big climate fora? Yeah, so it's, it's actually the structure of the global economy. So what I do in the article is I'm pointing out the way in which both you know poverty, inequity, and the military and the and the growth society all go hand in hand. So you know you've got extraction of resources which are essential to maintain the economic system in place. You want to get the, your hands on those resources and secure them. So what do you do as a nation state? You invade countries and take them over. 
right? Now, capitalism can use money to buy people out and to get, get it that way as well. But how do you secure your trade routes? And it's about security. People want to secure their trade routes. They want to secure their energy supplies. So they don't do it in friendly ways. They do it by having a large military force. So every nation state that has large GDP, which is growth, basically, you know, gross domestic product, it's the wealth measure of, of the growth economy. These wealthy nations, every single one of them, what I show is that they have a proportion, a military in proportion equivalent to the, the wealth they have, which basically says that the, the bigger your wealth, the bigger your military, right? And the military is securing your resource supply. So why don't environmentalists uh, you know, hit on this more hard? Very few of them do. Very few of them even mention it. Uh, some of them are aware, but very few are even going down that route. And it's really a major problem. So if you take the U.S. military, if it were equivalent to a nation state in terms of its emissions, it would rank 47th in the world. It's equivalent to the size of somewhere like Portugal or Peru in terms of its emissions. Now, the United States has the largest military in the world, but there's plenty of other big militaries around, right? So, I mean, the United States is a military empire. It's, it's, an, it's invading other countries, takes over, secures the supply routes, makes sure that governments that come in that might nationalize supplies or take supplies away from the supply route are destabilized and overthrown. And it makes alliances with undemocratic regimes uh, and totalitarian dictators in order to maintain its resource supply. So it's all about securing your resources, maintaining the resource supply. That's why the military is not on the agenda. It's not in the Paris Agreement. It's never mentioned. And if you mentioned it, you would not have a seat at the table. Environmental organizations became co-opted over time, embracing the language of green marketing. How exactly did this process start? I think there's, a, there's some key moments in the environmental movement when this happens. So what we saw is in the 60s and 70s, late 60s and early 70s, you saw success of the environmental movement. You had environmental protection agencies set up. You saw international agreements. You saw legislation being brought in. And what happened then was it scared the corporate world. You, you saw civil rights and civil rights re legislation coming in as well. And, and basically, you know, like Black Lives Matter is, is a new uh, episode of what happened in the 60s. The same thing happened in the 60s, right? And the, and the result of the 60s was legislation. Now, legislation scared the right wing and it scared the industrialists and it scared the elite. So what you've got is a backlash. So you've got people like Nixon elected in the United States, right? You've had a right-wing backlash. Now, this continues on into the 80s, and you get people like Reagan, you get neoliberalism. So people who are being put into power who are actually against regulation, they're against the regulated state. Then what you get in the early 90s, when you start to see things like international treaties and the Rio treaties coming along, you see a concern that the corporations are now frightened that they are actually going to get regulated outside their national governments by international treaties and other things. So they have to then attack this. Now, the, up to this point, the, the corporations are sitting against the environmental movement. They hire public relations firms 
to advise them on what they can do about this, the public relations firm's reaction is, okay, what you need to do is you need to look at these guys as a, as a, like a market approach. What we'll say is we'll segment them, okay? So you can segment these into different groups and then you can target the different groups. So what you have in the environmental movement is you have pragmatists, you have idealists, you have the people who are opportunists and you have radicals. You need different strategies for each group. You ignore the radicals. You can't do anything about them. Opportunists, you can buy them. You buy them off. The idealists, you can talk to and convince them to become opportunists. And the opportunists, you convince to sit at the table and that you'll be a nice guy. And if they sit at the table and do what you tell them, then they can be a party to the, to the whole process. So this is effectively what happens, right? So they marginalize the radical groupings and they co-opt everybody else. But that's not enough. Then the next thing they do is they take over, right? So if you look at the boards, for, as the United States is a great example, right? You look at the boards of conservation organizations, you will see CEOs and executives from transnational corporations are in many of these boards. And they're, in not, they're not a minority. They're quite often half the board or on the executive boards, they may be the entire executive boards. Then you get the board to elect the directors of the company. So you get things like Mark Terek uh, taking over the Nature Conservancy Council. You get the US World Wildlife Fund uh, taken over by Pavan Sugdev. These are guys from the financial markets. You know, they worked for, for the big finance corporations. So you've taken over the whole thing by then. You've got the board, you've got the director, you've got the whole NGO and you've marginalized anybody who's dangerous. And then if you go even further, you can get the governments on board and you can make the radicals into terrorists. And then you can use your military and your security services to eradicate them. New energy has been propped up by individuals like Greta Thunberg and groups like the Extinction Rebellion mobilizing the masses. Are we seeing a change for the environment or just business as usual? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? So it's in, in part, you could say it's a revivalism of the radical uh, aspects of it. And it's obviously been something that many environmentalists who have seen this kind of erosion of the environmental movement get excited about this. We can go back on the streets, we can protest again, we can identify the opposition. The problem is uh, Extinction Rebellion is apolitical in much of what it does. It's set up on a basis where it hasn't got any ability to actually... Uh, have an agenda which is political and identifies the opposition or the structure of the economy or what it should be taking on. And unfortunately, Greta Thunberg is exactly the same. So, you know, she can go to the Davos meetings, speak to the Davos elite. She can have uh, a very emotive discussion there and embarrass them in some ways in the international media. But they love this. Why is she invited there, right? Why is she standing there, the Davos elite, saying, you're all bad people, you're being naughty men, you were burning the house down? Well, basically, because they can then say, oh, look, the environment, it's a really important issue. We need to do something about this. We never knew about the environment. Oh, what we'll do is, having given her, co-opted her and given her a seat at the table, they say, what we need is money. Yeah, we'd love to do something about the environment if only the world's governments would give us a few billion and then we could do something. It's perfect for these guys, right? So what they're doing is they learned the PR lesson 20, 30 years ago. You don't oppose, you co-op, you bring these people in. Great, Greta, 
jump up and down, have a tantrum, say some nasty words, and we'll go to the government and say, we need to do something. Look, Greta's told us we have to do something now. Give us the money and we'll go off and develop the new technologies that will save the world. <laughs> it's perfect. An Extinction Rebellion, right? There's, I know lots of people in Extinction Rebellion. They're well-meaning people, but most of them are totally apolitical. They don't understand the structure of the economy. They don't understand anything about the military industrial complex. They don't understand anything about the growth economy. And if you try to tell them, they tell you to get lost because they are the activists and they are the one who are doing something. Well, what they're doing is they're, they're, they're putting themselves on a terrorist list and the government's quite happy to get a nice long list of all the people they arrest so that they can identify them all and then blacklist them later. I mean, they're going nowhere, right? And you, and you try to tell them about, okay, so you want to have a, a citizen's uh, participation, right? I've been running citizens' participations. We've been doing this for 30 years, you know, and where have we got to? We don't get very far, right? Because the power structure is elsewhere. So they can sit there and have their nice parliamentary meeting. And what's it going to happen to it? They get a recommendation report that goes to somebody on a committee that is already sidelined with the big boys and the corporations. And they'll say, thank you very much. We listened to you. And now we're going to invest in the corporations like they wanted us to. With the recent pandemic forcing nations to cut down on energy and travel, what lessons can be learned with regard to the realistically altering the course of climate change? Yeah, I say it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, what happened with COVID is that you got a massive regulatory approach. They didn't start doing market-based solutions and, and emissions trading kind of things or financial. They had to respond quickly, so they regulated. So you've got direct regulation. And as I was discussing earlier, this is exactly what scared the corporations in the past. They don't like direct regulation because it's effective. They want something that isn't effective and that they can manipulate and make money out of. So they don't make money out of direct regulation, so they were regulated. So if you wanted to address things like climate change, you have to regulate. You have to change the production system. You have to get rid of things that are going to be harmful and, and actually stop them from being produced rather than what's going on today, which is buying and selling permits to allow people who are rich to continue doing bad things. Right. And it's like, you know, people can buy and sell uh, all sorts of stuff. The downside of the COVID thing is that you see that. Right. So you see ventilator machines suddenly going up in massive uh, prices. You see states in the U.S. competitively bidding for ventilator machines. You see masks being sold and, and traded at ridiculous prices in the first round. So there's also lessons from COVID, which are exposures of the structure of the economy and how capitalists will make money out of anything. I mean, if you look at Amazon, it's, it's massively increased its profits, right? So, you know, you've got billions going into the hands of billionaires and they're making private money out of it. Now, why is this happening? Why aren't we supplying things through the government? I mean, in, in Austria, the military was helping the supermarkets to sell their stuff, right? So you have a crisis, so they bring the military in to help supermarkets make profits. <laughs> it's, and you've got governments pouring money into the private hands of private sector. Right. So this is the other side of this is it exposes the problems of the market economy and how you just make private individuals into billionaires if you go down that route, rather than doing the direct regulation. The other side of this is the problem, though, of course, is that people will not people who are living in the West have grown up with this idea of various types of freedom. 
and freedom is heavily encapsulated around consumerism and, and uh, free choice, uh, free travel, and these kinds of things, which of course have been heavily promoted by corporations. So if you restrict their consumption range, then they regard this as being anti-freedom. So we have a problem in a neoliberal society where freedom is defined as consumption, that if you regulate it, it's a problem. But there's, there's, a, you know, there's a kind of double-edged thing going on here, right? So the state, the governments are not allowed to regulate, but the corporations are allowed to push their products on you with propaganda. But if states try to do anything, then it's called propaganda and it's negative. They're not allowed to market things. They're not allowed to tell you to live a different lifestyle or to educate you. You can only be educated by the corporations these days. It's perfectly legitimate for the corporations to sell you new products, technology, phones, whatever it might be, and to see you see hundreds of thousands of adverts every year, and that's fine. But if a government tries to tell you something, oh, that's bad, can't have that. So I think there's a lot of things. So that what COVID does is it actually legitimized both the government, the government able to tell you messages to actually tell you the truth about things. Of course, not in America, unfortunately. You, know, you had a guy who doesn't know what the truth is, but, but you know, science actually gets credibility here as well. So I mean, stupid people who believe a lying president end up dead, you know? I mean, and they will learn the hard way, right? They get sick, they get ill, they die. And that's the message. Unfortunately, that's the message that we know we're looking at with climate change. People who believe, people who lie and tell tell you know uh, falsehoods all the time, they're going to end up with the consequences. But unfortunately, it's not going to be the same as with uh, COVID. It's going to be people on the other side of the world who no one cares about, right? So the rich will be able to avoid the problem. That's what they that's what they 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 bank on doing. Mm -hmm. So I think COVID raises lots of issues for us about it. And it really accelerates one, it says to you, direct regulation. It also says faith in science, so that science is not uh, something that is, uh, it, it should be derided completely. You know, it's like, yes, we should be asking questions, be skeptical about technologies. We should uh, investigate into things and check them out. And we, we should be very careful, for example, about a vaccine that's gonna come along as a miracle cure without any testing and without any look into, into secondary effects, right? I mean, this is the kind of things that science does. It thrusts technologists on you. So you want to be careful, but that doesn't mean that all science is rubbish or all science is a faith system and we should ignore it, you know. You've been listening to economist, teacher and activist Clive Spash on the typical flaws in conventional climate change strategies. His site is clivespash.org. Tune in again next week for yet another update on the coronavirus. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.